Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, a private group's bid to bring the Commonwealth Games to Hamilton in 2030 has been cast aside. What are the implications? Well, we'll talk about that. Members of Parliament have summoned the big grocery store CEOs to testify about food price inflation and those rising costs. And fighting one Cold War is bad enough, but waging two at once, it's nearly impossible. That comes as the U.S. is now facing simultaneous showdowns with China and Russia. Wayne Petrosi, professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Toronto's Metropolitan University, will join us and talk about that. All coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Big announcement yesterday that uh, the Commonwealth Games bid with the Hamilton 100 group uh, is no more. Uh, it is, uh, well, dead in the water, essentially. They got a letter from uh, the committee the other day that simply said Hamilton is no longer uh, in the running. They are not the preferred choice for the games coming here. It was, I guess, just taking the air out of the balloon in, in so many different ways. And we're going to talk about that now. Uh, we're also going to use that as the topic for our last call segment at 1130 this morning. Are you mad or sad that the Commonwealth Games bid is dead in the water? I'm really looking forward to getting your opinions on that. But let's uh, talk about what happened over the last 24 hours or so, and probably what happened over the last 24 months or so, because it all led into what was going on. Uh, the bid is essentially dead. Uh, we were told that uh, the, the group that has been trying to get this uh, 2030 Games for the city of Hamilton uh, is no longer going to be the preferred candidate. That's the, the wording that they used in this. So PJ Mercati, who was part of the group, uh, had this to say. Commonwealth Sport Canada had a specific list of requirements that they needed the province to provide, you know, modest funding for an international bid and other other small technical items. And they presented a deadline of February the 13th that they required this information by. And unfortunately, that deadline had lapsed. So that's where we are right now, and uh, there are a lot of disappointed people here, but I think <laughs> let's learn from this. We need to analyze this, and uh, uh, to, to peel back a few of the layers, please to welcome back to the program Rich Gelder. Rich is the president of the Hamilton Olympic Club, uh, former candidate for Hamilton City Council. Uh, Rich, uh, thanks so much for spending some time with us. Glad you could join us today. Well, thanks for having me. I should point out that I am the past president of the Hamilton Olympic Club of I, I've stepped back from the presidency, serving as treasurer, though, but still heavily invested in athletics in the city. Yeah, but it's but like being the president of the United States. You're always the president, right? So you have in mind anyway. <laughs> so <laughs> what, what was your reaction, Richard, when you heard the, uh, the news yesterday? Oh, it was profound disappointment. Um, I, I can't say as though I'm terribly surprised because um, I, I've been reading the political tea leaves on, the, on this for a long time. But again, it's just profound disappointment and just the, the timing of it. Um, a bunch of us were down at the First Ontario Centre, where I am right now. I'm literally at the First Ontario Centre for the first day of the Hamilton Indoor Games indoor track meet. And I was with a group of people that are have put decades of volunteer effort into volunteer, into amateur sport in the city. And the one thing that we really, really need are our facilities, particularly indoor facilities. And when the announcement was made yesterday, it effectively killed our dream of having um, a competition-ready indoor facility as part of the bid. We lost the opportunity to leverage funding from uh, senior levels of government. And here we are back at the First Ontario Centre inside a hockey rink running a fantastic event for kids. But you know what? This will be the last one because, we, as we all know, the First Ontario Centre is undergoing serious renovation. So going forward... We, for the foreseeable future, probably in my lifetime, we won't have um, an indoor facility. And it's, it's a shame. It really is a shame. 
this bid, in my estimation, was never about the two-week event, although that would have been fantastic to bring the Centenary Games home. But as with any uh, such bid, it is the facility legacy. And we have missed an opportunity to um, really improve the uh, access to facilities for young athletes, for kids. I mean, Hamilton is supposed to be the best place to raise a child. And that's to not even count the other opportunities to leverage the bid for things like affordable housing and the other amenities that go with that. Um, I'm, I'm just disappointed on so many levels. But uh, again, I can't say as though I'm surprised. Well, and let's talk about why we're not surprised. And, and I mentioned that on my commentary on CHML earlier this morning. Uh, it's disappointing, but I'm not surprised either because th this thing, in, in some way, shape, or form, it seemed cursed right from the beginning. I mean, the, I, you know, I, we've talked to a number of the principals involved, uh, Lou Frappaporti and, and PJ McCandy and a number of the other folks. Uh, some of them wanted to stay behind the scenes, but I think people have a pretty good idea who's in this group. Uh, but it just seemed that, that they seemed at some point uh, directionless. Uh, you know, we're going to do this. Oh, no, we're going to bid for the other games. No, we're going to go back to this game. Uh, you know, and it just seemed right from the start that there, there wasn't a focus. There wasn't somebody driving the bus here to make sure that this was going to happen. And and that's, I'm not, you know, trying to dump all over the people here. I think they, they did what they thought was best, but it just didn't seem to have the, the same drive, or the kind of drive that it probably needed to, to succeed. Yeah, and I think the difference there comes down to political will. I think even yep. the organizers... Uh, Messrs. Uh, Mercanti and Fraporti, I mean, I mean, God bless them for what they've done to try to make this happen. I think they realized early on that they were going to have to take a different track because the, the city wasn't really stepping forward with enthusiastic support. I mean, we had really lukewarm messages of support from the mayor, um, and that was probably the best that we got. The current mayor during the campaign and even since, but that was basically it. And we had... and. Suffice to say, we've had a different council elected um, last last fall, and we're not only reading indifference, but we're, we're seeing some commentary today that suggests open hostility. And, you know, if the city was going to be a partner, I, I don't think this bid ever had a chance, to put it bluntly. And um, it's really, really unfortunate and disappointing because, again, as in 2010, um, as in 2015 with the Pan Am Games, and you know, if you'd like to talk me to talk about that from a track and field perspective, I have a few choice opinions on that one as well. And whether it was, you know, the, the, the drive to 26 during the pandemic or 2030, it just seems as though it's changed. We had the support in 2010, but politics behind the scenes killed us. We think we had the support for our part of the 2015 Pan Am bid. But we got knifed in the back as a track and field community uh, at the time. And here we are again. We have done everything that we can in addition. We're, we're volunteers with the sport of track and field in this city. And in addition to providing the programming like we're doing today through the 91st Highlanders Athletic Association, we have been there every time we have been asked to, to support this. And um, like I say, it's just one disappointment after another. And well, I don't know where we go from here. Well, I don't know if we go anywhere from here. Uh, you know, this, this is, there's a pattern developing here, which I find troubling. And, and you're right. I mean, let's get right down to brass tacks here. Uh, without political support, this thing is dead in the water. And it, that's exactly the way it was. And, and you know, a, a curse on all their houses. There are some members on council that were not just not supportive of this, but were, it basically wanted to undermine it right from the beginning. Uh, yes. It's up to the local MPPs and MPs to support programs like this when they're, they're on the table. And I don't know that they did as good a job as they could have or should have. Uh, and, and you're right, even from the mayor's position, you know, where is the support and the drive for this? 
Uh, and and I think that's why this thing was, you know, the support for this seemed to be like a mile wide and half inch thick. Uh, so it was pretty easy for them to shatter this. And and, and that, that's why I'm so disappointed in this. And I, I, I'm wondering where we are going with this in the future, because as you know, and I know, uh, a number of the people that were involved in this bid uh, are also involved in, you know, this bid about revitalizing the sports and entertainment facilities down here, too. I mean, does this take the air out of that balloon, too? Can they deliver that? Can they deliver this? I mean, this, this, Rich, the thing that's driving me nuts about this, this thing was almost handed to Hamilton on a platter. You know, the Commonwealth Games, they wanted the games here. Yeah, you're the bid. We're not going to put anybody in your way. And we still dropped the ball. Yeah. The betting is that it will be in a Canadian city. The games have not happened in Canada. By that, by 2030, it will not have happened for 36 years. I'm pretty sure that the successful bid will ultimately be a Canadian city, but it looks like it's not going to be Hamilton. I mean, I understand that um, that politicians get elected with um, priorities and agendas, and we saw a real change. And Many of the priorities that we see shifting on city council, I mean, they're laudable, they're important. They're probably the most important things the city has to deal with. But you know what? We can walk and chew gum at the same time. I mean, we've always heard that this bid was always going ahead at the expense of other spending priorities. Well, you could literally say that about any project. Um, but there was just so many um, things that could have been put together that, that this this could have been had a real positive outcome for this city from both a sports perspective and a social policy perspective in terms of, you know, the, the things that current council have enunciated as priorities. And we've just missed this opportunity. It's um, it really is unfortunate, but um, I, I get that some see this as quote, not a right fit. I believe that was a quote I saw in the paper today. Well, I think that respectfully, some of these counselors have to step out of their own myopic vision of why they're there I mean, they're there to dis to represent their constituents. They're there to represent uh, people who need championing, the uh, marginalized and disadvantaged. I, we're certainly all about that. We do a lot of that work in our club as, as a sports organization. But um, they have to be city builders at the end of the day. And I don't think that, that yesterday's development and, and sort of the factors that led up to it tell me that, you know, Hamilton is the best place to raise a child or age in place. I mean, I think, we, again... It was a real missed opportunity. Well, I think there's a couple of things going on as far as City Hall is concerned. Uh, one, as you say, some of them see are driven by ideology as opposed to pragmatism. Uh, and, and there's a political naivety here. With, and it's not just because some of these people are new to council. I just don't know if they do their homework. Uh, yeah, we should have put the money into this and this and this instead of something like this. This is the side door or the, even the back door way that you get money from the feds and the province for games like this. And we've, I know when we talked to, to Mercantis and others involved in the, the Hamilton 100 bid, uh, they showed where the money from these past games has gone. You know, it's it's gone to supportive housing because they have to build this stuff, and then it's turned over to the city afterwards. There could have been a huge uplift here uh, where that money's going to flow, and it's not going to flow here now. Uh, it, it's just they don't seem to understand how short-sighted they are with these, when they make decisions like this. And as you say, it's going to go someplace else, and uh, and they're going to benefit from that like other cities have in the past. And, and Hamilton, once again, is just going to sit here and, you know, gaze at their navel and say, why can't we get what everyone else is getting? Yep. Um, the early betting is that it's going to Calgary. Yeah, we're going to be asking, you know, why can't we have nice things in Hamilton? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, well, I don't know. I, I, I think, as I say, there's a political failing here. And, and I think that's at, at the heart of this. And, and, and 
it could have and should have gone over the finish line. That's all there is to it. With the momentum that was here, and and I understand the differences in the province's uh, ineptitude here too, and that's that's got to be discussed. Uh, you know, the province made it pretty clear right from the get go that uh, that they were all in. To, with Toronto and, and the, the FIFA World Cup thing. You know, they wanted to get a few games, and they're throwing a lot of money at that. And uh, that's the choice they made. But they should have been upfront about that. It simply said, don't knock on the door because the money's not here, instead of stringing Hamilton along to the extent that they did. And 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 that's on them. That's on the Ford government and, and the, the local MPPs who didn't carry the ball. And, and that's a little frustrating because one of those MPPs, of course, is, is a guy you and I both know, Neil Lumsden, who's the, the sport minister. Yep. And Neil was the guy that championed the, the World Cycling Championships uh, some years ago here and did an outstanding job. But he knows that he couldn't have done that without provincial and federal assistance and without some great community support, David Braley, the late David Braley, and so many others. So they know the formula. They just didn't follow through. They didn't do the heavy lifting. Now, I certainly don't want to let the province off the hook because we had been led to understand that the, the provincial support would be there and until it wasn't. And we found out, you know, midday yesterday that, that support either wasn't there or, like you say, somebody dropped the ball. We don't know. Um, it'd be interesting to hear if we ever have an opportunity to uh, um, to, to meet with Minister Lumsden, you know, exactly what happened beside, behind the scenes and what didn't happen and why decisions were made and weren't made. Because, again, I, I think at the end of the day, the province may have been reading the political tea leaves locally as well and thought, you know what? Maybe we don't fund this because we don't see the, the widespread political support, or at least as it's communicated by the current city council. So, you know, what's our incentive for doing this? It's really unfortunate. I can tell you what the incentive is, and I would invite anyone to come down to the first Ontario Centre today or tomorrow to watch these kids running, jumping and throwing, the physical movement that's going on, the joy that these kids have. Um, it's a limited opportunity. We get this facility one day a year. And um, if we're going to be um, engaging kids uh, from across the community in athletics, we need a more permanent indoor facility. And um, I, I can't stress that enough. That's why we were supporting this bid. The Hamilton Olympic Club, of course, are the founder of these games. We pretty much ran the first games in 1930 under M.M. Robinson, who was our, yeah. our club's first president. And um, to have brought this back for this centenary and what would have followed, it's just a shame. Bill, it's just a shame. It is, it is, and and I know the the history there from the, you know way back when when they were at the at the armories and everything else. It's a fabulous game. Enjoy the games, uh, and best of luck to you and the athletes that are going to be involved in this. And and sadly, it looks like Hamilton has uh, gone back to their fallback position, which is say no to everything and then just sit here and wish things are going to get better. Uh, they don't exactly. seem to get that. That that takes a little bit of effort and blood, sweat, and tears to make things happen. Uh, all the best, Rich. Thanks so much for this today. Thanks, Bill. Always a pleasure. Rich Gelder, uh, president of the Hamilton Olympic Club, uh, and, uh, one of a long line of people that's very, very disappointed, not just in the decision, but the way this thing has been handled or some would suggest mishandled. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I think it's a major problem that the CEOs themselves, those that, that are the decision makers for those companies, haven't shown up. And that's why we put forward our motion to say those at the tops of these companies, those CEOs that are making massive bonuses, that are making bonuses because they're, they're creating massive profits for these companies, they should be able to answer questions. Why are the grocery prices so high? That's a federal NDP leader, Jagmeet Singh, who uh, put the motion in the parliament the, uh, the other day and basically bring these guys up on the carpet and say, hey, what's going on here? Is that going to do any good at all? So next guest gets some opinions on that, I'm sure. Marvin Ryder is a professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University and joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Good morning, Marvin. I hope you're doing well today. 
I'm great, thank you. Glad to be here. Well, then it means you haven't been to a grocery store lately, then okay. <laughs> Getting to the point where you have probably much have to take a lorazepam before you go through the door because of the shock that you're going to see when you get in here. What, what, I, I, it's easy to point the fingers and say, okay, it's their fault. Uh, I, I'm not so sure they're going to make any headway by bringing these guys in here if they even decide to, to you know, comply with this sort of thing. Uh, maybe explain to us, backtrack a little bit, Marvin, about what's going on and why we're getting sticker shock every time we go into a grocery store. Sure. Well, all grocery stores operate the same way. We call it in business cost plus pricing. They take the cost of an item to them, they add a markup, and they sell it to you and I. It's not just grocery stores, just about every retailer works the same way. So if the cost to the store goes up, then when they add their markup, the cost to you and I goes up. And this has been the standard comment from all the three big grocery chains that, uh, look, it's not our fault the cost to us, whether it's the cost of a bag of potato chips or the cost of a, a, a liter of milk or the cost of meat, whatever it happens to be, it's gone up. And in fact, there's some truth to this. In the last year, for instance, the people who look over dairy issues have granted producers not one, not two, but three different price increases over the last year, saying that the farmers need more. And that's true. And we cheer those farmers on, but when you start the chain and you increase prices, it just gets multiplied through the whole chain. Now, Bill, the other quick thing I'd like to note is that the this committee that we're talking about in the House of Commons had invited the major grocery stores to come speak to them. And they did. Key executives did come and speak to them, but the CEOs did not. And when asked, why didn't you attend Mr. or Ms. CEO, the answer was, well, we sent you the people who know prices intimately. In other words, the CEO doesn't sit there with a chart of 25,000 products and say, this is what you're going to pay for each and every item. That, that's just not a good use of their time. They have people who are experts on pricing who do this work and they do it week in and week out. So they sent the executives who were in charge of pricing. For this vote that was just held, I think what happened was that the MPs who serve on the committee that's not good enough. I want to stare a CEO in the eye and say to them, this is wrong, and, and put them on the carpet and stare them down. So great, I, I guess. I don't know what that's going to accomplish. I suppose the, the MPs are going to try to embarrass the CEOs. They'll probably bring up their annual paycheck and say, look, you got paid $2 million last year. That was up from $1.5 million the year before. And yet, you're, you're, and I think they want their chance to to complain directly to the CEOs, but will that change anything? I, I, my feeling is probably not. Well, and why would it in situations like that? I mean, you know, unless they're going to come back uh, and, and well, there was a past government did this years ago and say, okay, we're going to put price controls on this. Uh, and, and, you know, and I don't, I don't think there's a, a mindset that anybody in Ottawa wants to actually go to that extreme. What they're looking for here are just answers. And 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 they come back, as you mentioned, Marvin, with all these same explanation. Don't blame us. And, you know, even the Retail Council of Canada, which seems to be advocating for the grocery stores, uh, is saying, look, at, call, call out the suppliers. They're the ones that are doing all this to you. But do the numbers add up there? Are, are, are the increase in prices uh, consummate with, with, for instance, the increase in profits by these stores? Because that's where people are pointing to right now. Right. So here, here's, again, a challenge for the average person to figure this all out. I said that everybody engages in what we call cost plus pricing. You add a markup to a cost and that's your selling. So we can actually measure, have the markups changed? Have they used this period of higher inflation to, to make a higher profit margin in terms of a percent 
Uh, and the answer is no, they haven't changed their markup percentages. Now it's true, if the cost of an item went from $1 to $2 and they put a 50% markup, what used to be a dollar and a half is now $3. But the, we look at that percentage, the percentages haven't changed. However, because the volume has changed, the absolute dollars, yes, absolute profits have gone up. But if you look at that as a percentage, it hasn't. Now, I know people are listening to us and saying, oh, you're just splitting hairs, Ryder. You know, a dollar is a dollar is a dollar. And I, I get where you're coming from, but we have to look at the fact that wh whoever you are, a bank, uh, you're a grocery store or you're a car dealership, if, if a car goes from 30,000 to 60,000, well, yes, of course your sales are going to go up. And of course, other things are going to go up along with it, but it's the percentages that are the most important. And we're not seeing any sign that these grocery stores have increased their profit margins. It's just that as the prices have gone up, so have the absolute dollars that they've generated. And yes, with that, you know, all these CEOs have a, a performance contract that if they can generate more profit for the shareholders, they are rewarded with a better um, bonus themselves. So yes, they've all had a better bonus. But, you know, it's not the bonuses coming out of my purchase of that box of cornflakes or that bonus is coming out of my purchase of that jar of peanut butter. It, it's the system. But, but part of the frustration here, and I know you've heard this as well, is, is you know, we look at statistics and we, we're inundated with reports from here, there and everywhere, you know, about yep. well, this topic today. And, and they say, look, you know, we're buying less as consumers. We're not buying as many groceries. We're not spending as much. And we're even going to the no frills and to the fresh goes as opposed to the, to the major stores. But we're still getting hit here. In other words, we're buying less, yet they seem to be making more money out of that. And you figure that just doesn't seem to jive. There's something going on. There's an incongruity to that whole idea. Correct. And so the, there's a couple of things to that. The first is we seem to be buying less. That, I'm, forgive me for quoting you like that. We seem to be buying less but we're actually not finding that. So when I talk to consumers and get them to complete a survey, they tell us they're buying less, but when we look at their actual purchase behavior, they aren't. It's a bit like, Bill, back in, oh, let's say October, a study will come out and people will say, this Christmas, I'm going to knuckle down and I'm not going to spend. That's what they tell us. But when we look at the actual results by the end of the Christmas season, people have spent in record numbers. And, and so this is the incongruity. It isn't so much an incongruity within the grocery store itself, but what the consumers are telling us they're doing is not backed up with what they're actually doing. And I, I'm not quite sure why that is. I think people give a politically correct answer. Oh, yes, during tough economic times, I have to cut back. And yet the reality is they're finding a way to get through all of this. So I guess the, the takeaway here, it seems to me, Marvin, is nothing's going to change anytime soon. No, that's, I think that's correct in terms of this. Now, look, the, the same House of Commons committee asked the Competition Bureau to do an in-depth study on this. So remember, these witnesses coming forward, whether they are a key executive or a CEO, this is all anecdotal. But I think the report being done by the Competition Bureau is the more important one. And we're going to get that later this year. It takes a while to gather all the data, analyze it, prepare the report they're likely going to get this in the second half of the year. And that report is going to confirm or deny what the anecdotal evidence is, meaning it's one thing for these executives to say something. Again, let's see if the data backs them up. And conceivably, there could be a smoking gun or two in that report. And if there is, then I suspect the House of Commons would act on that. 
So right today, there is no ad, ad, uh, appetite for uh, wage and price controls. But if that report says that what these executives telling you are is just a lot of crap, that they really have been increasing these profit margins, they really have been gouging the consumers, then I suspect the House of Commons will respond. Well, uh, more to come on this one for sure. Marvin, as always, thanks for this. Really appreciate it. Glad to be with you, Bill. Marvin Ryder from the Dugood School of Business. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. China today continuing to accuse the U.S. of sending at least 10 balloons into Chinese airspace without offering details. Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Wang Wenbin said that specifically since May of last year, the U.S. flew the balloons over China and other countries and said the U.S. needs to make a thorough investigation into the matter and give China an explanation for this. When asked for more information, Wang once again said that questions should be directed to the American side. Britt Clenet, ABC News, Hong Kong. And that, uh, that is uh, going to frame the first segment we're going to do in this particular hour uh, about, uh, well, <laughs> U.S. relations uh, with uh, some superpowers that uh, seem to be on the edge right now. Glad you're with us. This is The Bill Kelly Show. See FBL London, CHML Hamilton. Uh, later on this hour, of course, uh, our last call is going to deal with uh, Hamilton's Commonwealth bid, failed bid, and uh, your thoughts on that. But right now, let's uh, f- focus on what's going on on the international scene right now. It's uh, it's tough. Uh, Canada-Russia relations have always been strained, shall we say, since uh, World War II, probably before that. Uh, even more so now with the war that's going on in Ukraine. But uh, when Joe Biden took office uh, some years ago, uh, he spent a good deal of his initial time, especially during his inauguration speech, talking about the threat that he considered to be uh, the most uh, important aspect of dealing with U.S. foreign policy, and that was China. So it looks as if uh, right now the United States is, is trying to face simultaneous showdowns with both China and Russia. Uh, is that even doable? And and what are the consequences going to be to this? Uh, to talk about this, so pleased to welcome to the program, uh, Wayne Petrosi. Wayne is a professor of the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Toronto Metropolitan University. Uh, professor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Oh, no problem. Now, this is, uh, well, one is a war, but I mean, the United States is not directly involved in that. They're certainly supplying uh, the help they can to Ukraine. Uh, but when you start a second front, Wayne, in any particular conflict, and this is more of a political conflict, I guess, but than, than a military one so far anyway, are you straining the resources? Is America picking a fight maybe where they should just be kind of stepping back a little bit? Well, I, I, I think while you're right in, in, in pointing out that this seems like uh, they are simultaneously engaging with their two great rivals, I, I think we need to see, separate them for a moment, if only to see the difference. Sure. Uh, in, in the Russian case, and, and Russia, I, 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 that I, I think is going to carry on for some time uh, with Mr. Putin in office. I, I don't think this, there's anything to look forward to except a continued bloodletting on, on both sides. And I don't see, uh, in Mr. Putin's case, there's no way out. Um, I, I, I don't think he can manage to, if you like, uh, eliminate Ukraine from 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 the from the map and defeat it. And on the other hand, I, it's equally implausible that Ukraine could uh, push Russia back to its pre-2014 border. I think this only so what we look to see is, as I said, uh, a lot more people dying. And um, this not ending as long as Mr. Putin's around. The Chinese case is is more complicated. 
they and the Americans are, are so intertwined at, on, on the economic side of things uh, that uh, it's it, it's it's more likely you're going to see some form of chilly but peaceful competition continue. Uh, I think the misstep of the Chinese in relation to the 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 balloon that it sent it was uh, was made worse by their denials and claims that it was some meteorological balloon that somehow managed to steer its way clear uh, to several sensitive military sites. I, I, you know, they, they seem to have buried themselves deeper by trying to talk themselves out of it. But in a situation like this, uh, who, and I guess this is a tough call, Wayne, who's the more imminent threat uh, to actually take it to the next level? You know, I, I really think the, 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 the current Russian-Ukraine conflict is the one that's uh, immediately much more troubling and dangerous. Uh, as I said, the, uh, the, the level of the conflict is accelerating as the West provides Ukraine with more sophisticated and deadly weapons. Uh, the Russians have uh, shown no signs, Mr. Putin has shown no signs, that he is willing to enter into any kind of negotiations except a negotiation in which Ukraine capitulates. Yeah. And and that's that's a war that's already in existence. I mean, you know, they they're killing each other on a daily basis sadly. Uh but the Chinese seem to be almost challenging uh the the Americans at this stage and 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 that's one of the things of course the president Xi is is, is pretty uh consistent with, with with his comments that uh, no matter what's going on in the world, it's the U.S. is behind it. And, and Putin's saying the same thing, of course, about the, the war in Ukraine. That it's, it's really the, the Americans, it's the U.S. that he's really fighting uh, you know, if, on Ukraine land, etc. But they, they, they're the ones that pretty much draw the distinction and say, this is us against them. Yeah, that's true. And, and you know, as I said, the Chinese case uh, is is much more complicated. At this point, of course, it is, it is uh, largely economic and technological competition. Uh, but China is committed to taking a seat at the table as a great power, if not a, co a co-equal great power, to, to the Americans. And they've launched initiatives in a variety of ways designed to do that, whether it's their own International Space Station, their own plans for lunar exploration, whether it's the massive economic investments and reaching out to developing countries in Africa and Latin America, whether it's, of course, the uh, very aggressive military behavior in the South China Sea, uh, by, you know, pushing the bounds in terms of what are international waters, what aren't international waters, and really alarming their neighbors. Their immediate neighbors are, are of course, alarmed and uh so that's a, they have pushed on a number of fronts, and I, I think it's I don't think it's helped them that they now have a leader for life in 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 presidency. Uh, I think they may come to regret that at some point. I'm always wondering, and I, I know you and I've talked about this in the past about China is obviously watching what's going on in Ukraine, uh, and and may see that the United States is 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 you know 
all in on that particular conflict and figure this is as good a time as any for them to flex their muscle, but which begs the question, how far are they going to go? I mean, would they actually stop and carry out an invasion that they've been threatening for years and years now? Uh, you know, would there be military incursions, basically, you know, dropping the glove down on the ground and saying, what are you guys going to do about it? I think that's, that, that's highly unlikely. I, 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 I think they are already probably trying to recalibrate the, their whole approach to Taiwan and and what they expect the rest of the world to uh, react in terms of, of Chinese claims to Taiwan, uh, they I think that's unlikely. Uh, the the challenge they face, of course, is is that you know a number of their neighbors have, as I said, have been alarmed for some years now, and um, are are themselves trying to develop more robust defenses, more robust capabilities to deal with, with, with potential Chinese behavior in their own backyards. You know, whether it's Vietnam, whether it's, it's you know, the, the Philippines, uh, whether it's, it, it's India, uh, it's not as if China uh, doesn't uh, have some neighbors who are pretty committed to maintaining their own positions uh, within that region. So the, then there's uh, the Americans. You add the Americans and yeah. their allies, and it, it looks uh, a little more complicated. The uh, big wheels, the, the, you know, the State Department and a number of other folks are, are going to be in Munich this coming weekend. It's called the Munich, Munich Security Conference, uh, just so our listeners are aware of this. And, and, and a lot of the leaders, uh, you know, uh, different Secretary Blinken and others are going to be there. It's right in the backyard, of course. I mean, it's going to be in Germany and Munich, which, of course, they're going to talk about Ukraine because Germany's heavily involved in that, as the U.S. is. Uh, but representatives from China will be there, too. And as we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, uh, President Biden has made that China circumstance in the South China Sea uh, a, a a key priority for foreign affairs and, and for diplomatic wiggling, I guess, have back and forth, given some of the things I'd hear. Uh, can they can they pay equal justice to both concerns here at this right now? Because, uh, you know, they, they're concerning right now is how long are they going to be involved in, in the Ukraine situation? How long is that going to go on? Uh, and at the same time, as you say, even if China is not going to th- carry out uh, any any affirmative military action against uh, Taiwan, uh, you know, they're strafing U.S. planes that are, are you know, f- flying back and forth in there right now. They seem to be challenging the United States, waiting for them to take the bite. They certainly are challenging them. And, and I think, you know, they're also noting that, in fact, you know, the United States does have the capability to respond to both uh, situations simultaneously. Uh, they have significant assets uh, in, in, in the South Pacific. As I said, they have a number of uh, allied countries in the region who also have, for their own reasons, significant assets for their own defense. Uh, so I think, you know, the, the presence of, of, of China at Munich is, is, is as much to, to get them to engage uh, more broadly than just in their own neighborhood, their own backyard, the South China Sea and the like, and also to perhaps begin to get a degree of separation between you know, China and Russia. I think it's probably at this point, I, I wouldn't see China and Russia as allies so much as Russia's a client of China. Uh, the Chinese clearly have what Russia needs. Uh, Russia had, has no capability to act in any way that would concern the Chinese. 
Uh, so I, I think we have to understand that relationship more as a client relationship, not as a cup, not as a relationship of of, of allies. You used to, you, the term of economic uh, conflict, and, and it's kind of like the, the battle within the battle, I guess, uh, when we're looking at what's going on on a global basis. Uh, and when you've got the United States in the, the situation where they are, where they're kind of caught between Russia and China, what's going on? Is there is there an attempt here to try to find allies? In other words, whose side are you on? I mean, I'm thinking of, of well, countries like India come to mind, Turkey, you know, and, the, and saying, okay, uh, are you with us or against us, uh, you know, in this situation? Uh, and those countries, uh, India in particular, um, seems to be trying to walk on the fence here, but you know exactly where they're going to be economically because they have relationships with both countries. Is, is there an effort to try to win them over to, or do they just take it and say, well, that's just the way it's going to be? Uh, that, that you know they're they're going to try to play both sides here, and and there are a couple of other countries I think are in the same situation. Yeah, I I, I think certainly with with respect to India, I think the American position is going to likely be to uh, acknowledge and accept that India is going to take advantage of the near term economic uh, uh, forces at play, cheap Russian oil, cheap Russian natural gas. And they're going to, that's fine. I think the Americans can live with that, that, that India is engaging in that trade. Because I think, uh, as you know, uh, India is already on a more strategic level engaging with the United States and Australia uh, in the South Pacific, in South Asia, uh, in relation to, to China. And they are interacting and sharing information. And, and and I think that's a more important relation aspect of the relationship the Americans want to preserve. Uh, you know, some of the other neighbors in that region, uh, you know, you notice recently F- Philippines has once again agreed to provide access to American military assets uh, to bases within the Philippines. Uh, you know, the Vietnamese have been building up uh, their military capacity. And I think, we, you know, we, 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 I think people often either don't know or, or forget that um, Vietnam has has engaged with the American uh, with the Chinese historically over a number of centuries. Uh, most recently, uh, in the late ninth, late twentieth century, when uh, the Chinese invaded Vietnam because they didn't like Vietnamese behavior in Cambodia, and the Vietnamese really really bloodied the Chinese. Uh, it's not the first time. It may not be the last time, but Vietnam is, is certainly much more aligned strategically, and it sounds odd to say, with the Americans in the context of of the South Pacific and South Asia. Uh, they're not happy with the with Chinese aggression in the China Sea. In fact, the most extreme Chinese claims with respect to the, to international waters in, in in the China Sea would leave. Vietnam with virtually no access to the sea, except for the first six miles off six miles off their shore, and that's not Vietnam. Vietnam is not going to accept the, those Chinese claims, and they know where they stand. And I know we're just about out of time here, but I guess the other element to this, and you, I think you touched on it, was was Japan, uh, who, as you say, are pragmatic enough to understand. Okay, China is China, and they're 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 threatening, and they're looking to to flex their muscle and expand. Uh, you can't do much about that, but I'm sure they're looking at the Americans and say, look, you got to make sure that you, that's as far as they go, uh, that they're not going to get overly aggressive because that's going to have an impact on, on that country as well. No, certainly. And and, and and Japan is beginning, it's very slow, but it's beginning that pivot away from its policy of non-militarism and neutrality. And they're beginning to do what 
is, is they're now recognizing as necessary. Increase funding to their military, increase the capabilities of their military to not just engage in defensive activities, but if need be to engage in offensive actions against an enemy. So, you know, Japan is, is, is going to be a, a, a slow walk given its history, and that's understandable. But certainly, yes, that, that page is beginning to be turned on, you know, where Japan just kind of trades with the world and minds its business and people can do whatever they like around them. Uh, they're becoming much more committed to, if you like, the, the alliance that, that's emerging in the South Pacific and South Asia. Well, a number of people are concerned about uh, global security these days because of what's happening on those two fronts. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what comes out of the security conference in Munich this weekend. Uh, Professor, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for this today. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Professor Wayne Petrosi from uh, Metropolitan University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.